Hello, listeners. I'm Rhett Moeller, and I'm the host of IDA Ideas, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Defense Analyses. You can find out more about us at www.ida.org. We also have a social media presence on Twitter and Instagram, so there are plenty of ways to keep up with the exciting work we're doing. Welcome to another episode of IDA Ideas. Because of the ongoing COVID situation, we are conducting this episode by video conference, so there may be a slight difference in our quality. In this episode, we're going to take some time to talk about the interesting work going on at the Institute for Defense Analyses. Our research staff is driven by curiosity, a desire to better know and understand the world around us, and to find ways to use what we discover to help improve the safety of our nation. Sometimes that work is directly tied to sponsor-driven requests, and sometimes it anticipates sponsor interest. Our topic today deals with this latter kind. There's a lot to cover, so let's get into it. I'm joined by three of our researchers from IDA's Science and Technology Division, Shelley Cazares, Emily Parrish, and Jenny Holzer. Can you each take a moment to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Rhett. I'm Shelley Cazares. I studied electrical engineering and computer science at MIT with my doctorate from Oxford in the Signal Processing and Neural Networks Lab. And I spent a few years in industry before coming to IDA. And here at IDA, I focused on machine learning and computational modeling for defense and intel applications, especially in gray zone activities where influence operations fit right in. Hi, Rhett. Uh, I'm Emily Parrish. Before starting here at IDA, I received my undergrad degree in chemistry and computer science from the College of William and Mary, and I'm currently working on my graduate degree at the George Washington University in data analytics, uh, and specifically I'm focusing on machine learning. Hi, Rhett. I'm Jenny Holzer. I came to IDA straight from academia after finishing my PhD in physics at Cincinnati and then spending a few years as a postdoc with the Living State Physics Group at Vanderbilt. And now at IDA, I do mostly cybersecurity assessments of our combatant commands. So with the cyber background combined with being a regular social media user, I'm excited to join Shelley and Emily on this project. Thank you, and welcome to IDA Ideas. Shelley, you've really been putting your machine learning background to good use in leading an interesting project. Can you tell us about your work using artificial intelligence to analyze social media data? Well, artificial intelligence, it's such a broad term, and so is social media. So I will be slightly more specific, and I'll say that we used machine learning to analyze adversary activity on Twitter. And a lot has been said about Russian interference in the 2016 election using social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And it turns out that many countries do this. And many of those countries do have adversarial relationships with the United States. Some countries started these campaigns well before the 2016 election, and some continue to this day. And so platforms like Twitter and Facebook, they've all been working with law enforcement and the intelligence community to identify these uh, active measures campaigns. And some platforms will then package up and release the posts made by the accounts so that researchers like us can study them and learn from them. 
And so I started an internal research project here at IDA back in uh, summer of 2018 when Twitter first released the account names of over 3,000 accounts posted by the IRA, which is the Internet Research Agency backed by the Russian government. And in July of that year, it was 2018, Clemson University uh, packaged up about 3 million tweets posted by those adversary accounts, and then they released them publicly on the 538 website, the data aggregation and polling website. I downloaded those tweets the very next day, and uh, the rest is history. Now, since then, Twitter has released millions of additional tweets posted by thousands of additional accounts from many different countries. But my research actually started with the first data set, which was posted by the Clemson academics. And, you know, as a machine learning researcher, I was so excited when I first learned about this data set back in summer of 2018, because it was it was well constructed and it was well organized and it contained so much metadata. You know, each tweet was time stamped and date stamped and uh, labeled by language tagged with the country that it was supposedly posted from. And so it was structured data and it was available for almost immediate analysis, which is a beautiful thing for a machine learning scientist. Absolutely. And as a librarian myself, I fully appreciate the beauty of structured data sets. It makes life so much easier. Now, many of our listeners who have worked in this area know what a huge field it is and that it continues to grow by the minute. And there are many different ways to approach a project. What kind of machine learning techniques did you use in this project? We mostly used a technique called latent Dirichlet allocation, or just LDA. And this is a form of unsupervised learning. It's a statistical model that automatically organizes the words in the tweets into underlying topics. So a human user like you or me could then just glance through those topics to quickly get a sense of what our adversaries were tweeting about. Uh, great. Thank you. Uh, now, you use some terminology here, supervised, unsupervised. Can you take a moment to define what you mean by those? Oh, sure. So there's really two main classes of machine learning techniques, supervised and then unsupervised learning. So supervised learning is when you have an answer key. You know what answer the system is supposed to spit out. And so you train the system by giving it data, training data, example data, and having it process that example data over and over again until it can spit out answers that are as close as possible to the answer key. So kind of like giving it old tests to practice on over and over again until you're pretty sure that it can get an A-plus grade. And then once it's trained, you deploy it so that, you know, you send it out to take new tests on new data that you don't have the answer key for. So that's supervised learning. Now, unsupervised learning is different. So with unsupervised learning, you don't have an answer key. Instead, you input the data into the system, and then you let the system figure out the best way to organize the data, you know, the best way to like rack and stack it so that human users like you or me could understand it better. So LDA is the technique that we use, and that is a type of unsupervised learning. You know, going back to LDA, uh, it's a very well-known technique it's been around for a while. I think the first pa paper was published in like 2003. It's been coded up in several different open source software kits that are freely available on the internet. And we use the Mallet software. 
And we chose to use the software fresh out of the box, meaning that we deviated very little from its default parameters. We did that on purpose because that way our findings would outline the lower bound of capability. You know, what kind of patterns, what kind of actionable intel that you could easily extract from the tweets. And I guess more importantly, you know, since LDA and Mallet were around back in the early days of Twitter, our work shows what kind of intel could have been extracted from these tweets back when our adversaries first got started in their social media influence campaigns. Thanks, Shelley. Uh, you did mention in your talk just now about some concepts and software that our listeners might be interested in knowing more about. And we're going to do what we can to provide links to these topics and products like LDA and Mallet in our show notes. So listeners, if you're interested in learning more about these particular items, be sure to check our show notes for direct links to more information. Now, Shelley has alluded to the global concern over this disturbing trend. Jenny, you took a look at what other research groups were doing in this area. Are there other research groups using the same technique? Yeah, so one of the first things we did was review the literature, and we found three main things. As soon as this data was released to the public in the summer of 2018, researchers from around the world, from all different disciplines, just jumped on it. These researchers were from data science, social science, international relations, you name it. And that's actually the whole reason that the Clemson University researchers shared their data set. They actually said that they wanted many more brains looking at it to see what else they could find in the data. The findings started coming out pretty immediately, like within the first week. Some of those focused on visualizing networks of Twitter users or focused on the overall topics that the trolls tweeted about. And then journal articles from groups of researchers applying machine learning techniques to analyze the data started coming out just a bit later, which brings up the second point that most groups who were using machine learning were building troll detectors. These troll detectors are systems that could take in a tweet and determine if it was written by a regular Twitter user like you or me or a foreign troll. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, I'm getting flashes of fairy tales here. What What is a troll, Jenny? Can you explain what that is? Yeah, of course. Trolls on social media are people who deliberately try to provoke others by saying inflammatory or offensive things. I mean, if you spent any time on social media at all, you have absolutely encountered these trolls. Some of them are just doing it for fun, for the fun of riling people up. And other trolls are really trying to create a more calculated response, as we'll talk about later. But now getting back to the literature review, the third thing we found was that most of the early studies attempting to understand the tactics and the strategies of trolls often ignored temporal information. I actually recall one article from a group of researchers in Australia, and in their article, they called this out as a limitation. The article said that if temporal analysis was done, it typically lumped all the tweets together and then looked at the number of tweets or the frequency of a particular hashtag at different points in time, rather than looking at how the topics that they tweeted about changed over time. Okay, I can see how that could be a problem. Yeah, definitely. 
And it's a problem that we are seeing around the world, that this troll interference and so forth. The potential for harm has certainly captured the attention of researchers. And so, uh, Shelley, can you tell us how this initial literature review informed your work? It was really helpful in getting us started. First, we did not want to make a troll detector like many of the other groups were doing. To do that, you would need to use supervised learning techniques where you have an answer key to a training set of tweets. You know whether the tweets in your training set were posted by a real foreign adversary troll or a real regular person. And to do that, you need two sources of data, tweets from real trolls, which we did have thanks to Clemson and 538, but then also a second set of tweets from real regular people, which we did not choose to harvest. So that precluded us from developing a foreign troll detector. And besides, you know, trolls are not unique to foreign adversaries. We grow them ourselves here in the U.S. So we did question just how useful a foreign troll detector would really be in the great scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And then second, we didn't want to lump all the tweets together over time because, you know, that lumping together is retrospective in nature. It's easy to pick out the patterns in the tweets when you have 2020 hindsight, you know, when you can see all the tweets at once. We wanted to put ourselves into the minds of an Intel analyst back in the early 2012 timeframe when the Clemson data first started. And so we wanted to base our analysis on a sort of thought experiment. Okay, great. And uh, just for the sake of il illustration, can you walk us through this thought experiment? Sure. So picture this, Washington, D.C., 2012. Hypothetically speaking, I'm just making this up, but Let's say that a U.S. intel organization gets a high-confidence tip that an adversary nation-state is clandestinely posting tweets on social media. And let's say that the source even identifies the particular Twitter accounts, you know, those that years later Twitter will eventually attribute to the IRA. But, but back then, in 2012, imagine that an intel analyst is tasked to monitor those flagged accounts, you know, for indications and warnings that our adversaries are using social media, maybe even to launch an information warfare campaign against the United States. So what does that analyst do? I mean, if, if you were the analyst, what would you do? What information would that analyst have known at the time? What tools would she have had available? Uh, you know, the LDA technique was alive and kicking back then, and so she could have used that. But how would she have used it? And how would she have analyzed the results? And what would she have done with those results in real time? Right. So that's the thought experiment that really drove our analysis. We set out to create a proof of concept prototype system using open source software tools like LDA and Mallet that could have helped that analyst practice her tradecraft. And our system was not intended to replace that analyst, but rather help that analyst perform the same type of tradecraft she always does and apply it to millions of tweets instead of just dozens of documents. Got it. And this raises a whole bunch of questions like how this hypothetical Intel analyst would have used your system, or could she have just poured tweets into it or pushed a button and sat back and let, let the system do all the work? Or was there some other pre-processing that she would need to do in order to get it ready for this? 
Uh, Emily, can you help explain this? Sure, Rhett. So about 90% of a data scientists or specifically a machine learning scientist's job is actually those pre-processing steps. Things like data cleaning, data normalization, um, putting the data in a form that the machine learning model can actually crunch through it. Mm-hmm. So we were really fortunate that the data that we were dealing with was very well structured. So the main things we really just had to take care of were the cleaning and the reformatting parts. So first, what we did was we binned all the tweets, which were parsed into individual files by month. And this was done just so we could look through the evolution of the topic patterns from month to month, kind of like Shelly said. We also separated out the English tweets from all the others since we had hypothesized that the English tweets were posted with this American or Western audience in mind. And ultimately, we had to address the big technical question here, which was, can we use machine learning techniques like LDA on such short pieces of text like tweets? Because usually LDA is applied to long passages of text, like entire documents or long reports. So could it cluster the topics with the documents of only 280 characters or even less? We did a few experiments to find out how short a text file could we could really process with LDA and um, what kinds of characters we needed to filter out before applying LDA, like punctuation or emojis, hashtags, or even URLs. So in some cases, we found it was best to remove some of those elements before inputting the tweet into LDA. And then in other cases, we found that it was important to keep it in. Okay, very interesting. Now, you've described what the hypothetical Intel analyst would have done to input the tweets into your system. Presumably, this could mean thousands, maybe even millions of individual items. So what does that mean for the system's output, Shelley? Well, remember... LDA is an example of unsupervised learning. So that means it doesn't require an answer key in order to learn from the data. And that's great because, you know, it could take time and money to compile an answer key. You'd have to get humans to read through thousands of example tweets and and label them just so. But we didn't have to do any of that because LDA doesn't need an answer key. Instead, it lets the words in each month's worth of tweets organize themselves uh, with no answer key for guidance. So no human input was needed up front, but there's a catch. I mean, there's always a catch. You can't get something for nothing. Unsupervised techniques like LDA, you know, they may not require human input up front, but they do require human input at the end. And so that's where Emily came back in. She didn't need to label the individual tweets, but she did need to label the tweet topics. And although there were a few million tweets, there were only a few hundred topics. That's a significant difference, uh, and it makes sense that work has to come in somewhere. That's There's always work to be done. Uh, Emily, can you explain your process? What, what is a tweet topic? What was your approach? Sure, Rhett. So the main outputs of the LDA model are the topics. Um, and if we're looking at a particular month bin, each topic is just a list of words from that month's worth of tweets. So at a high level, These words will cluster because the words seem to appear together a lot in the same tweets, you know, over and over again. So the LDA model learns these clusters and groups them together into what we call a topic. Uh, Just to provide an example, a topic could be a list of words like sports, NFL, super, game, bowl, etc. And 
when we put some semantic context to it, it's clearly a sports-related topic. So the label would just simply be sports. But LDA, as we see in this example, doesn't really provide a semantic meaning for why these words are grouped together. It's just seemingly Mm. a random list of words. And that human needs to provide insight. And I served as that human for our analysis. And if we reference back to that thought experiment that Shelley discussed, I kind of stepped into that role of the hypothetical Intel analyst. Well, lucky you, Emily. You sounds like you had a very important part in the processing. Why did Emily get to play this role? How did she get to be the one to provide that human input? Jenny, do you have some insights into that? Yeah, of course. So to provide the semantic labeling or the why behind the automated word groupings, you need a human expert. And by expert here, I mean someone who understands the nature and the source and the context of the data. This would be true for any machine learning project. Uh But here for this project, we're talking about tweet data. And so we needed someone who understood Twitter. We needed someone fluent in English since English was the most predominant language of the tweets. We needed someone with a strong cultural understanding of the trends and the memes and the hashtags used in American online culture. Since most of these tweets were spoofed to make it look like they were actually posted from a Twitter user in the U.S. Okay. So again, we needed someone who spoke English understood American cultural memes, and had a strong familiarity with Twitter, and Emily fit that bill. Great. Uh, So Emily, what did you do in this role specifically? So my task was to essentially look at each grouping of words or each topic and assign a one to two word label to that topic. And that was to semantically summarize what the topic was about. So we set the LDA model to fit 10 topics per month. And there were over 30 months in the data set. So that meant over 300 topics that I had to label. And it was important that I didn't bias myself in that process, that I didn't say focus too heavily on one month at the expense of other months. Right. So I wanted to print them all out. We removed all the furniture in Shelly's office and I actually (laughs) spread them all out on the floor so I could see them all at once and together. Then I just got down on my hands and knees and I read all of the topics going forward in time with my human eyes. And in that process, I marked them up using different color highlighter pens so that I could track if each given topic seemed to carry on from month to month. And it was super crucial that I looked at the months like this because sometimes the topics would disappear and then reemerge a few months later and then some of the topics were actually cyclical, like the Christmas topics popped up pretty much every December. Oh, that's really interesting. So it sounds like there was a lot of this spreading out on the floor and looking it over with your human eyes. How long did it take you to label that many different topics? So it took about a full work day. But oh. knowing what we know now, we've actually developed some more high-tech visualization techniques and a better... SOP that probably could speed things up. Interesting. Uh, And obviously going through, you began to see different patterns emerge. Were were there any surprises in this part of your work? I imagine that with so much to work with, you were bound to find something. Uh, Shelley, do you have something on this? Yes. We found that our adversaries' topics did not remain constant. Uh, Instead, they evolved over time. 
And in fact, we uncovered multiple distinct tactical phases of their attack, all of which could have been provided to U.S. government decision makers with only one month of lag time. So to be specific, their English tweet topics grew tighter over time, more specific over time, more negative, and more polarizing. Their final pattern solidified around fall 2015, which happened to be one full year before the 2016 election. Interesting. A progression toward a more defined pattern would certainly seem to indicate intent. Sure. So the first tactical phase we found was 2012 to 2014. The earliest tweet in the data set was February 2012. So this was the first two years of the data set. Back then, only a few dozen tweets were posted each month. So the system could have gotten by with no machine learning at all. So, you know, no topics to spit out, just histograms of statistics, you know, bar graphs to show that most tweets were in Russian with few in English. Our hypothetical Intel analyst could have looked at each tweet individually and she would have just mostly seen Cyrillic characters. So I think that she would have surmised that most of these tweets were not meant for an English-speaking audience in the U.S. So she probably would have just passed these tweets off to the appropriate language or regional expert and then settled back into a sit-and-watch mode for the next two years. Yeah, a lot can happen in two years. Did you see any definite changes during that period? So not really, no. Um, We saw things change after that in uh, late 2014 to early 2015. At that point, the adversary began tweeting more and more frequently by over two orders of magnitude. Uh, And by January 2015, the most prominent language was now by far English. So our analysts could have at this point sat up and noticed a change in behavior of the data itself. And then, of course, to characterize that behavior, she wouldn't have been able to read through all the tweets since there were tens of thousands of them in just one month. But that's where our system could have come in. It would have made her workflow easier and automatically organized the main topics of the tweets for her to label. I guess, for instance, we found that many of the English tweets in January 2015 used words like make, love, time, thing, success, give, smile. So this like loose, vague, and feel-good, positive topic that our analysts could have labeled just motivation, for lack of a better word. Um, And also many tweets used words like news, local, police, fire, killed, and so on. And, And that's another loose, vague topic, but this time it's kind of negative. And so she could have labeled it local news. And then also we go back to our previous example, words like sports, NFL, super, game, bowl. And remember, this was January of 2015. So it's obvious this was a sports topic, but it's probably more specifically the Super Bowl. So based on all these topics, most really vague and loose and some with positive and some with negative affect, we suspect that the Intel analysts in real time back in 2015 could have been pretty unsure about what was going on based on the pattern of topics. I presume this phase could then be seen as baiting the hook, right? Using mainly benign themes to draw the largest possible crowd, but then setting the stage for the real purpose with some of these heavier words. Uh, Jenny, do you have any insights into this? Yeah, then we saw the pattern change just a few months later. In the 
summer of 2015, the adversary started tweeting about a single cultural topic. Emily determined this to be exercise, but she still saw that a little bit of news and a little bit of politics was still thrown in the mix. And they also started tagging specific Twitter users. We think they were trying to do this to try to build a following at this time. But at this time, our hypothetical intel analysts would probably still be confused about what the adversary's underlying strategy was. Sure, it's really all over the place. Shelley? And then it all fell into place a few months after that. In fall of 2015, the topics were suddenly tighter, more specific, and more varied, and more polarizing. I mean, many tweets were still associated with the local news topic and the politics topic, but now many more of the politics tweets had adopted a more polarizing tone. So less like, this candidate is running for president, and more like, this party will slit their wrists if this candidate wins the primary. And there were also some really polarizing topics that emerged, like guns and terrorism. And so this is the time frame when things got very interesting. Mm -hmm. Fall 2015, you know, one year before the 2016 election, that was the earliest point in time in which our proof of concept system could have helped reveal what we now all know was our adversary's strategy to sow discord, especially in the English speaking world. Wow, that is a significant shift in message. Uh, Did their tactics change again after that, Emily? Based on our analysis, their tactics stayed pretty much the same after that. For example, in October of 2017, we saw specific polarizing topics like the NFL national anthem protests, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and the Las Vegas shooting. Yeah. And, you know, many of those later topics in 2016 and 2017, they continued on, like those relating to specific topics in news and sports and politics. Also, many later topics related to race relations, which is a very polarizing issue. I guess you could say from the perspective of this adversary, the way to Americans' hearts is news, sports, politics, and racism. Wow. But this data set ended in spring 2018. And from our ongoing research, it doesn't look like that much has changed since then. The adversary's patterns seem to have remained the same. Okay, great. Thank you so much for sharing your analytical experience. And now for the so what. What does all this mean? Well, there are really four takeaways here, and I think we could each take one and then I can wrap it up. First, just because our adversaries' tactics haven't changed that much in the last couple of years doesn't mean that they won't change a lot in the future. They did change a lot in just 2015 alone. You know, from those loose and vague motivation and news topics in early 2015 to the single topic exercise tweets in mid-2015 to those specific and varied and polarizing topics in late 2015. Right. So we know our adversaries can adapt because they have adapted. And so the United States needs to be able to adapt too. And throughout our thought experiment, we kept envisioning two people in our heads. So the hypothetical Intel analyst, like we've talked about already, but also the troll manager tucked away in his or her office, thousands of miles away from the United States. You know, what was he or she directing their staff to tweet about each month? 
You know, what was written on their whiteboard and when did they erase their whiteboard and start all over again? And did their strategy remain constant over time and it was just their tactics that changed or did their underlying strategy change over time too? So to get at those kinds of questions in the future, the U.S. government will need machine learning systems that can adapt over time if, and let's face it, when our adversaries adapt. Absolutely. And understanding adversary mindset is obviously a huge advantage for sure. But definitely keeping in mind the analyst is an important consideration. And if the system's too unwieldy, it's going to fall out of favor quickly, especially at the rate that this information flow increases. Yeah, that's actually our second takeaway point. Any machine learning system has to scale. And during the months with the most tweets, the pipeline handled tens of thousands of tweets. And could easily have handled more. But as the human analyst, I was the bottleneck in terms of scalability. Uh, I had to read through the topic words for each month and apply those semantic labels to them. And that was tricky and it took it took some time. And mm-hmm. since then, you know, we worked out a SOP for how to make that easier on the human, but it still takes discipline and time for that human labeler. Also, If we wanted to do that labeling on like a week-by-week process or a day-by-day basis, could a human keep up with that pace? I mean, probably not with like the right out-of-the-box LDA techniques that we used. So newer machine learning techniques could really track the tweet topics from month to month, and that would automate some of that labeling process to lighten load on the analyst, and then maybe she could respond more quickly to more tweets. So also a third thing we took away is that this kind of influence operation could happen at any time, not just in the run up to an election like we've been talking about, but for any event like a pandemic or like a protest. A lot's been written about all the disinformation surrounding the protests in Hong Kong last year and more lately about the coronavirus pandemic. So for the future, we're envisioning sort of a dashboard system for decision support. Anytime an analyst is tasked with monitoring accounts that have already been attributed to foreign adversaries, this analyst could pose a series of queries, and it might go something like this. For all tweets posted by the adversary accounts, show me all that were posted in the last month in the German language from a supposed German account at between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. Central European time. Because, of course, you would think that most real Germans should actually be asleep at that time. And then let's filter further. Of those results, show me all that were related to the topic labels coronavirus or social distancing. And hey, this looks like an interesting tweet. Show me all the tweets like this one with a similar combination of topics. And show me all the ones dating from March 2020. Because, you know, like when Germany first imposed social distancing restrictions, the state's important. And then of these, show me all tweets that included the hashtag Wuhan and so on and so on. And this type of human driven drill down approach lets that analyst explore her hypotheses about how the adversaries sowed discord among NATO allies about the origins of the coronavirus. And that's just one example. Yeah, I can definitely see that sort of dashboard setup being extremely useful, especially for somebody who's in the business of detecting threats. And our final takeaway is this is a multidisciplinary problem. 
So you really need experts in three things. First skill set is science and technology to create those advanced systems that can automate more of the topic labeling process, leaving less load on the human analyst, as Emily talked about. That's what we're working on right now here at IDA. The second skill set is geopolitics and foreign language to understand what events are happening in different regions of the world, as Jenny talked about. And our former military intelligence colleagues here at IDA have been helping us with that. And third, the third skill set is social science. Look, I'm a machine learning scientist, so I focus on data, 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 and algorithms, algorithms, algorithms. But I will be the first to say that we can't forget the social in social media. Twitter is not just a bunch of bots tweeting at each other. You know, there's real people involved who formulate tweets and interpret tweets and act on tweets, all against the backdrop of their own cultural experiences. And so rigorous social science research is needed not only to help analysts understand the answers that their systems spit out in response to their queries, but to help them formulate their queries in the first place. And my social scientist colleagues here at IDA have been helping me better understand that over the last year or so. The good news really is that the U.S. does have all of these skill sets in abundance, science and technology, geopolitics and foreign language, and social science. The hard part really is just getting all those experts together under one roof and herding the cats. Absolutely. And that's not just the U.S. IDA certainly has a lot of experience in each of these areas. We are definitely interested in doing more work in this area, and we have a lot to contribute to national security when it comes to this sort of analysis. Shelley, Emily, Jenny, thank you very much for taking the time to discuss this intriguing project with us and for giving us more insight into an interesting yet serious topic. It has been most illuminating. As always, if you want more information on IDA and its ongoing work, please do check us out at IDA.org. Also, our social media presences that we mentioned at the beginning. This show is hosted by the Institute for Defense Analyses, a nonprofit organization based in the Washington, D.C. area. Once more, you can find out more about us and the work we do at IDA.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we discuss another big idea here at IDA Ideas. Thank you.